preach the cross, preach redemption to a lost and dying world. Lift your voice on the shame of the gospel of his name. Well, amen. It's good to see every one of you this morning. Trust that you had a great Thanksgiving. How many of y'all are still dealing with that Thanksgiving turkey hangover? Just raise your hand. Too much uh, turkey this past week, and uh, this weather may not help our drowsiness. And uh, but anyway, it's a joy to to see you all, to be with you all this morning. And if you would take your Bible and turn with me to First Kings chapter number twenty-two. First Kings chapter number 22, and then we'll also read in Second Kings chapter number 1. And as we are continuing our uh, series of messages on the life and ministry of the great prophet Elijah. And let me just say that uh, this introduction that I'm going to be giving in this message is longer than what they typically are. But I'm going to try to summarize what's going on in this, in this particular chapter and then finish up with about three different uh, spiritual lessons that we can take from it. But we saw last Sunday in chapter 22, uh, 1 Kings, that King Ahab was absolutely dead set in going into battle with the Syrians even after the uh, faithful prophet of the Lord told him not to do it. Don't go into battle, you're not going to win, and you're going to die. But nevertheless, Ahab did, and I say dead set because Ahab did die in battle. Uh, He even tried to disguise himself in the battle, hopefully that the uh, enemy would not recognize him. He didn't wear the king's attire that kings would wear in battle. But nevertheless, an archer shot a just a random shot in his mind but that bow that arrow rather penetrated between the joints of Ahab's armor and he was fatally wounded he died as we talked about last Sunday that arrow was clearly guided by God himself well that brings us to the latter part of 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 51 Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned two years over Israel. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother, that's Ahab and Jezebel, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat who had made Israel sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. Then 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, says Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent his messengers and said to them, Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of the Quran? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then it says, so Elijah departed. I want to speak to you this morning on this thought, falls, flies, and fire. Now, two years had passed 
since Ahab had died in battle. And we see here in 2 Kings chapter number 1 that Moab has now rebelled against Israel. Moab, that pagan, God-forsaken country, has now, that was once subdued by King David, now sees an opportunity with a very weak Israel to rebel and to cause war between the nations. But as we have read, Ahazai, the son of Ahab, was afraid to go into battle. And no wonder he was afraid because his dad died in battle. And he no, he no doubt thought that he would be safe if he just stayed home in the palace. But remember what the last verse of First Kings chapter 22 says, that because of his rebellion and because of his wickedness, that it provoked the Lord to anger. It provoked him to anger. And he thought that somehow, some way that he could avoid the wrath of God instead of going into battle, that he would be safe in his palace. But friend, let me tell you something. He thought wrong. He thought he would somehow be hidden from the wrath of God in his home, but that didn't happen at all. We see that it turned out that his palace was not such a safe place after all. We see this in verse 2. Where it says now, in verse 2, now Ahazi fell through the lattice in his upper room in Samaria and was injured. That is, some versions put it as he grew ill or that he was sick. But he was seriously injured. He was bedridden with some type of internal bleeding or a wound of some kind that was clearly life-threatening. But we see that he falls, it's kind of a freak accident. He falls through the lattice. Now we know what lattice is. Most of us know what lattice is. It's this thin wooden strips that are crisscrossed that make a pattern. And we know that lattice really is made more for decoration, right? Lattice is not made to walk on. It's not made to support weight of any kind. We don't know what, uh, what happened exactly to Ahab's son here who fell through the lattice. Either he carelessly backed into the lattice that typically surrounded the tops of the roofs in those days, or he stupidly stepped on a flimsy skylight made of lattice. But either way, he fell, and he fell hard. The Bible doesn't necessarily describe his injuries, but they were clearly very serious injuries. And naturally, the king wanted to know if his injuries were going to prove fatal. So that's why we see in verse 2, the latter part of verse 2, so he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron, that is a Philistine city, whether I shall recover from this injury. Now, this is the first mention here of Beelzebub in Scripture. Beelzebub was a Philistine deity. He was a Philistine false god. His name meant Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. And that was a very fitting name As I understand, the land of the Philistines was thick with flies. And the Philistines evidently believed the infestation of the flies signified that the Lord of the flies lived in their land. So they made this fly god as one of their many deities to worship. It's also during this time that they had some very famous Beelzebub prophets who claim to be able to predict and tell the future. Usually they gave very flattering prophecies with predictions so vague that they could hardly miss, but the Philistine prophets nonetheless had gained a lot of fame throughout Israel. I guess we could say that they were some sort of the psychic 
friends network of Elijah's time. But the king decided that he would send messengers to the fly God's prophets to tell him if he could expect to live or die. And really what we find here, beloved, is this, this occult curiosity about the future ultimately cost him his life. Friend, listen to me this morning. God absolutely despises all forms of occult fortune-telling, and he strictly forbade his people to engage in that sort of evil. And this king absolutely should have known this. I mean, after all, he was the king of God's people. He was the king of those people whom God had graciously, graciously given them the law. But he did not know. Or if he did know, he absolutely didn't pay any attention, didn't live by it. Notice what Deuteronomy chapter 18 tells us. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 says, when you, This is the Lord speaking. When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. And so through Moses, God gave the people a zero-tolerance policy against all the occult practices. So it's very, very clear, absolutely clear from these commandments that God does not want any form whatsoever of occult fortune-telling as something to be messed with. And this is why. You should never, never read a horoscope. This is why you should never consult a fortune teller and make some kind of superstitious decision. Because why? This is a very serious sin. It was an especially serious sin for the ruler of Israel, for the one who sat upon Israel's throne. He, of all people needed to honor and obey God. He did not need to consult these petty Philistine deities like the fly God. Again, it was bad enough for the common people to worship this false deity. But it's another thing for the king of Israel to do that. We know that Saul and this king should have known that Saul lost his kingdom because he sought advice from a witch. And here we see this young king. He lost his life because he wanted to inquire about his future from the fly God. Listen, if you want to know the true characteristic of a person, the true character of a person's spirituality... You just notice who they call upon in their hour of greatest need. And here we can see this young king's character and how flawed and how depraved it was that in his greatest time of need, he doesn't call upon the Lord God of Israel. He calls upon the fly God, Beelzebub. But notice, however, that God sovereignly hindered this king from getting any advice from Beelzebub. We see this in verse 3 where it says, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of, uh, of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. 
And so Elijah departed. Now here we see yet another instance of Elijah's trademark appearance. There's one thing that we've learned in our study throughout the life of, and ministry of Elijah is that he always seems to appear out of nowhere, confronts his enemies, and then disappears before they have time to react. And this episode is, is no exception. And Elijah has bad news for this young king. He says to that young king, you shall surely die. He says to that young king, hey, you're never going to get out of this bed. This is your deathbed. You're, you're not going to make it. And he tells this king's messengers to go back with that message to their king. And they listen to Elijah. They don't follow the, their king's commands. They listen to the man of God and they go back. They don't even seek the counsel of Beelzebub. They go back and verse 5 tells us, Verse 5 says, And when the messengers returned to him and said to them, he said to them, Why have you come back? So they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then he said to them, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Now you would think, by receiving these words from Elijah, that, that, that it would absolutely frighten this young king. I mean, he knows from experience that Elijah, he speaks for God. He knows from, from experience that Elijah is a real man of God. As a matter of fact, Elijah had never once been wrong about any prophecy that he prophesied. For instance, at Elijah's word... A three-year-long drought was started. And then finally, after three years, he gave the word and it rained again. Another instance is that he, Elijah, called down fire from heaven there on Mount Carmel. And then in 1 Kings chapter 21, where, uh, when Elijah confronted Ahab in Naboth's vineyard, the prophet knew everything about Ahab's treachery against Naboth. And then Elijah correctly predicted Ahab's demise because of it. And now he's telling this young king, Ahab's son, that he too was soon going to die. But his response was not one of fear and repentance. This young king's response, rather than fear and repentance, it is one of anger and one of hatred against Elijah. You can almost hear the, the disdain where he says, I know who that was. That was Elijah the Tishbite. Listen, he hated God's man with even more hatred than his father had for God's man. We see this in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to him, and there, were, there he was, Elijah, sitting on top of a hill. And he spoke to him, the captain did, Man of God! The king has said, come down. Now, I believe that you know that the intention that the king had here by sending his captain and, and these 50 men, this was not intended to be a friendly gathering right here, okay? They were not on the welcoming committee, I promise you that. Oh, no, we see again in verse 9 that... Uh, as we continue reading, it says, So Elijah answered, or rather, I think verse 10, and it said, The captain of 50 
Elijah says this, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. And this was apparently an instantaneous thing. This was something that happened just at once. This, this fire from heaven, listen, didn't just kill these guys. It did not just char their bodies. It consumed them. It devoured them to nothing. All 50 of these men could fit neatly into an ashtray after this took place. Amazing. Now, some people have blamed Elijah for destroying these men by, burning, uh, by uh, bringing down fire from heaven upon them, but they miss a major fact that it was no more possible for Elijah to bring down fire from heaven than for them to bring down fire from heaven th- themselves. Beloved, listen, only God could bring the fire down from heaven. And as God is God, he is a just God, he is a righteous God, he's a good God, God would not have destroyed these men had there not been a sufficient cause to justify this act. And so when God's sending down the fire, listen, he was not doing this to please Elijah. No, but he did this rather to show his own power and righteous justice. It's very, very important to know that God led Elijah to simply announce on this occasion what God had already determined to do. Well, evidently there were witnesses to this instantaneous cremation. And these witnesses reported back to the king. And when the king heard this, when he heard the news from uh, his messengers about how his men were just devoured and destroyed, it should have woke him up. But it didn't. Matter of fact, it emboldened him to rebel even more. Notice in verse 11. It says, then he sent to him another captain with his 50 men. And he answered and said to him, Man of God, the captain did, thus has the king said, come down quickly. So Elijah answered and said to him, said to them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, he sent a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. Hello. He done got the message. He comes to Elijah with a different countenance. He's humble. He falls on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains and uh, of fifties with their fifties. But let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king to see the king. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, he arrives at the palace and he is shown in, in, into the room where this young king lies on his deathbed. Now, that's a sobering thing to, to, to see anyone on their deathbed. But my, how sobering it must be to see a king on his deathbed. Verse 16 tells us, Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? 
Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Ahazi died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken because he had no son. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Yes, they are. So there you have the story, and all that's just the introduction. I'm not going to be long in giving these these spiritual lessons that we gain or glean from this story, a very intriguing story. But here's the first lesson I want you to to, uh, learn from this this story. The first thing is this, how low sin brought Ahazi. How low sin brought him. Listen to me this morning. Sin will cost you. Sin will cost you. Somebody said this. Sin will cost you a lot more than you'll ever want to pay. And sadly, this young king had followed in his wicked father's footsteps. You could say like father, like son. Oh, what a lesson that is to us as fathers. As we lead our families in this old sinful world and this, this sinful society, how important it is to lead a godly life before our children. Not a perfect life, but a godly life. But we also see this young king, he followed after his mother's wickedness. His mother was Jezebel. And to a degree that he himself was just a puppet ruler for Jezebel. In other words, she told him what to do just like she told Ahab what to do. She was the real power behind the throne in Israel just like she was when Ahab, his dad, was reigning. But we see this young king's short reign was, so, was, was marked with so much wickedness that God's judgment was inevitable sooner rather than later. And this is very plain to see as we read this because you can absolutely see the hand of divine displeasure in the accident that this young king suffered. Listen, this king absolutely despised God. He hated God. And so God gave him over to his own sin. He gave him over to his own lusts. In fact, this young king's life really reveals how often our sinful rebellion carries its own consequences. Why did the young king pursue after a false god? Why did the young king pursue after, of all the gods, a fly god? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because he had already rejected the truth. And therefore, he had no option but them to pursue a lie. And that is why he sought the future. He sought the future from a lying demonic prophet of Beelzebub. And you need to understand the character of this Philistine god, Beelzebub. Again, his very name, the Lord of the Flies, has a filthy, foul sound to it, does it not? And Beelzebub was as vile a deity as anyone has ever invented. Listen, he supposedly ruled the flies, those revolting insects that swarm around every kind of decay and filth and spread disease and spawn maggots. Is there anything as nasty and gross As a maggot, all nasty. 
Who would ever think in their right mind about worshiping a deity whose realm was everything so foul and unclean? Listen, this shows us the awful depravity of mankind. How far mankind can go in their sin. As a matter of fact, the whole idea of a God who delighted in all that was unclean was so revolting to the Jews that they altered the name of Beelzebub slightly to make it Beelzebul, B-U-L, which meant the God of the dung, D-U-N-G, the God of waste. But you get a sense of how utterly abhorrent Beelzebub was to a typical Jew. In fact, this dung god, Beelzebub, was the consummate example of a demonic false god. He so epitomized everything impure and unholy, everything that opposes the true God, so that by the time of Jesus in the New Testament, the name Beelzebub had become a way to reference Satan himself. So when you read the name Beelzebub in the New Testament, it is always a reference to the devil. And that's a very fitting name for the evil one, is it not? The God of dung and Satan himself was in a true but spiritual sense the real object of every Baal worshiper's devotion whether they knew that or not. As a matter of fact, Paul said it like this. He said, what pagan sacrifice they offer unto demons, not God. Think about that. Whatever they sacrifice, they're, they're offering, unbeknownst to them, they're offering unto the devil, not God. Listen, there is a real demonic energy in all false religion and occultism, that is one of the chief reasons the people of God are forbidden to mess with those kind of things. But consider this. Consider the irony of the fact that this young king sitting on the throne of Israel had so much contentment, uh, uh, contempt rather, for Israel's God that he'd be willing to inquire after the lying prophets of a loathsome being like Beelzebub, the god of the fly. But again, this young king had rejected the truth. And so what did God do? He gave him over to a reprobate mind. He gave him over to his lies. I mean, it's one of the most absolutely irrational things to reject truth. Have you ever pondered and asked yourself, why would people reject truth? You know, we're living in a society that hates the truth. More and more, we're seeing this. Even when you have facts, even when you show them, here is the truth, but they don't care, they hate it. They despise the truth. They've been given over to believe a lie. Very dangerous for society to be in that shape. It's more dangerous for you to be in that shape. It's damning for you to deny truth. It's damning to your soul to deny uh, salvation's call and the gospel's call upon your life. It's a fearful thing to reject the truth because God may give you over to believe a lie. Hey, listen, don't belittle this young king's infatuation with this Beelzebub. When we have been given a lot more light than this king has, and we as a nation reject the Lord God and we follow after stupid gods ourselves, false gods, But let's just suppose that the prophets of 
Beelzebub had told this young king what he wanted to hear, that he was going to live. Just suppose that he did get word from these prophets that, hey, you're going to live. That still wouldn't make it true, would it? No. Listen, in, in the, the, the morning's horoscope, if it says that there, this is a great day to launch a new business for yourself, that does not make it true, does it? No. Who knows how many people have destroyed their lives pursuing lies because they have no choice after they reject the truth. You're always going to believe something. God has made us in such a way that we are to believe something. That's why it's so important that we are to believe the truth because if not, then we will believe a lie as truth. That's why we need to hold fast to the truth uh, God has given us and order our lives, live our lives by what Scripture says. And we know modern society in general has gone the opposite direction, rejecting Scripture in favor of astrology, rejecting Scripture in favor of psychology and evolution and humanism and secularism and all these other superstitious lies. But if you turn away from the truth to follow fables, you, in effect, give yourself over to Satan, the father of lies. That's why it is sheer folly for this young king to inquire of the Philistine prophets in the first place. Oh, listen, many, many wicked men have sat on the throne of Israel. But this young man may take the cake as far as his wickedness is concerned. This episode was something of a low point for the whole era that an Israelite king would inquire a Philistine god? The god of the flies? Here's a second point. Notice, secondly, how far faith brought Elijah. How far faith had brought Elijah. That's a really, there's a really remarkable contrast between the Elijah of this episode and the Immature prophet, remember, who ran from Jezebel all the way to the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. But here we see now Elijah, who is confident, he's, he's bold, he's unmovable. First, Elijah the prophet, he commands the messengers on the road boldly, ordering them to go back and tell their king what he doesn't want to hear. And then notice in verse 9 that when the young king sends his soldiers to come looking for Elijah, what is Elijah doing? Is he, is he running in a cave trying to hide? No, he's sitting upon a hill. He's sitting on a hill. He knows that this young king wants him dead, but he doesn't run and hide. He sits, he sits in plain view on top of a hill where they will be sure to find him. And then when they threaten him, he more or less casu just casually calls down a fire out of heaven and reduces them to mere ashes. This is the prophet at his best, most mature. And what is the reason for the difference? Why was he so bold here? Why was he so courageous here and not when Jezebel was chasing him after Mount Carmel? Well, his faith. His faith grew strong. And here he reveals an amazing and really superhuman level kind of faith. He stands unflinching before an army of 50 armed men. And he displays the kind of faith that Jesus spoke about in Matthew Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus says, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, 
You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now let me explain something about that. That kind of faith that Jesus mentions here is a supernatural kind of faith. Its source is not from within. Its source is God. Jesus wasn't suggesting that, that, that you can somehow summon this sort of faith from within yourself. He was not teaching that if you try real hard and you believe in yourself strongly enough to command mountains to move. No, that's not his point at all. The point is that true faith is trust in a promise God has already made. True faith is belief in what God has said. Listen, Elijah was a prophet. And he knew through his prophetic gifts that God intended to carry out his judgment this way. God's judgment this way. In other words, true faith has both its source and object in the Lord. Elijah was not exercising some kind of superstitious self-confidence. His trust was in God. And it was God who then performed this miracle. In that same vein, it's very important to note that Elijah didn't call down fire from heaven against these men out of personal or uh, petty vindictiveness. No, no, no. If that had any part of his motive at all, God would not have answered with fire. Some people had trouble reconciling this passage with Luke chapter 9 and verse 55, where James and John wanted to call fire down from heaven against some Samaritans because they refused to allow Jesus to pass through their village there in Samaria. But Jesus rebuked James and John for saying such a thing. But just to be clear, Scripture never condemns at all, never condemns what Elijah did because it wasn't even Elijah who did this. God did it. Contrary to what a lot of people think, the New Testament does not promote a pacifist agenda. What happened when Elijah encountered these messengers was an act of God, and he did it for his own glory. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself will one day destroy his enemies with a fire retribution from heaven. But on that day in Samaria, when James and John, uh, when, when Jesus' mission was a mission, or excuse me, yeah, a mission of salvation, and James and John were reacting really out of uh, anger because they had been personally insulted by the Samaritans. Therefore, their desire to call down from uh, fire from heaven was inappropriate and w- wicked. But Elijah's fire from heaven was meant by God as a public display of divine vindication and a public judgment against an evil regime that sat on Israel's throne opposing the Lord God of Israel. Notice thirdly and finally how patiently God's mercy pursues the wicked. One lesson we can gain out of this is how patiently God... God's mercy pursues the wicked. In the midst of all this judgment, there is still a constant display of the Lord's mercy to his enemies. Now we know that uh, the, the young king's injuries are one clear example. But understand this. I say that is an example because, folks, listen, he could have died. This young king could have died instantly when he first fell. But God was merciful to this young king. The Lord graciously spared his life for a time, giving him an opportunity then to contemplate his impending ruin and giving him an opportunity for repentance. Listen to me. 
Such an opportunity is never to be taken for granted. God owes no such mercy to no one. In fact, you contrast this young king's fate with that of his soldiers who were destroyed on the spot with no opportunity to seek any remedy whatsoever. Listen, God is not unrighteous at all to judge instantly like that. But so often, thankfully, he does not judge instantly. I would guess that there is not a person in this room who has not been the beneficiary of the kind of divine mercy that I'm talking about here. God often gives us time to reflect and He gives us time to reflect and those warning signs to reflect on before He makes us taste the bitter consequences of sin. And those are opportunities for repentance. And I hope you never, never waste them or take them for granted. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 1 says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. But this whole episode here reminds us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Quite literally, we see the fulfillment of that and what happened to the first captains and their army. But the third group of soldiers is a reminder of how they humble themselves. It's a reminder that God gives grace to the humble. Amen? God's mercies are never exhausted to those who humble themselves before Him and confess their sins. All those who confess their sins can always find mercy with, with the Lord. Oh, listen, the patience of God is truly something to marvel. And we're cautioned again and again not to take God's long-suffering for granted or just to presume on His grace. Thinking, well, I, I, I've been a sinner now for this many years and I'm still living. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get saved later on. Now, you are presuming upon God's grace. That's why the scripture tells us today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Listen, whether you are a believer or not, all these truths are moving incentives for us to carefully self-examination, self-examine our, our lives before the Lord. Listen to what 2 Peter chapter 3 says in verse 15. It says, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That is, He's given you an opportunity he has not acted out in, 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 in judgment on you because he's long-suffering, waiting for you to respond to his mercy. Uh, it was Vody Bauckham that said, Do you know it was his mercy that woke you up this morning? Because his judgment should have killed you last night. His mercies are new every morning. Hebrews 3, verse 15, tells us, exhort one another every day as long it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then again in verse 17, it says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the day of rebellion. If you have never been saved by the grace of God, Oh, listen, I plead with you to trust Him today. Trust Him. Just like those third group of men that came to arrest Elijah. They humbled themselves before Him. 
And what did they find in doing so? They found mercy. They found salvation. And that is what you must do to be saved today. I'll finish with this verse. Even to the believer. You therefore, beloved, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask you to do what I cannot do. And that is bring about conviction. Bring about repentance and faith to those who have not yet believed. Lord, reveal unto them that the very fact that they have breath in their lungs is your long-suffering toward them that they would repent. Lord, I pray that they would not take those times for granted, but Lord, that they would respond accordingly by humbling themselves. Father, I pray for every child of God that is here. Lord, maybe they've been dabbling in sin. Lord, remind them the consequences of sin. The consequences of sowing and reaping. That you're not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. That there's mercy and there's forgiveness if we would humble ourselves and repent and turn from our sin. Lord, seal this message to our heart. Use it for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And I challenge each and every person that is here, if you... Do not have a relationship with Christ, a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon him today. Heed the word of scriptures, of the scripture where it says, Today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. Trust him. Call upon him and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you have a tremendous week. And uh, just praise the Lord for each and every one of you. We're going to sing a chorus, and then we'll be, dis- be dismissed. All right, amen. Uh... Preach the word, preach the cross, preach redemption to a lost and dying world. Lift your voice.